1 Peter 4, beginning at verse 1. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. So as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. But they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh, the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. This is the word of the Lord. Allow me to pray this morning. We thank you, Father, for your word. And we admit, Lord, there are some things difficult to understand here. We pray for your spirit's aid. Illumine our minds, illumine our hearts. Help us to be receptive and understanding. And give us, Lord, the grace to walk in the truth, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Okay, have a seat. Yeah. Great athletes uh, go through a lot of preparation, both physically and mentally, for great events. I don't say that from experience. I'm just told that. <laughs> And I was reading this, reading this just this uh, last week about the amount of mental preparation some athletes go through. And uh, one of them was the young man who scaled El Capitan freestyle, right? Uh, straight up that uh, mountain took him three and a half hours. It says that he began preparing mentally for that seven years ahead. <laughs> seven years ahead <clears throat> something maybe a little easier to grasp I mean that's just out of this world would be a couple of the events in the Winter Olympics you know the bobsleigh and the luge events are two of the most physically demanding events in the w uh, Winter Olympics and the reason is as if you've seen that how fast they go down the high gravitational forces that they experience stress the body so much that they have to limit the, the, the number of practice runs. They can't go one after another. So how do they prepare? What they do is they create and they maintain a mental map, a mental map of all the various turns and bends in the course. And so they prepare themselves with this mental picture of what they will face and how the forces will, will feel as they go down uh, in the, either the bobsleigh or in the luge event. And in addition to the mental map uh, that they, they kind of work through and imagine themselves going through, they also practice not only a visualization, but self-talk. That is, uh, an internal dialogue with themselves uh, because they're going to face such danger and uh, such powerful gravitational forces. Uh, I mention that because I think in some way, to a degree, though different, uh, what... Verse 1 here is an appeal by Peter to his early readers and to every Christian, to you and me, to, uh, to do something very similar, and that is to adopt and maintain the same mental picture as Christ had in regards to suffering. The ESV translates it, the same way of thinking 
that belonged to Christ as he suffered. When it says in his flesh, it just means in his human body. He was a, he's a, was a man and is a man. He experienced suffering in this life in his body. And that term, translated way of thinking, uh, refers to an attitude. An attitude or an insight, sometimes it's translated. An insight into God's purposes regarding suffering. Christ had an insight into that, and he had an attitude towards it. He had a mental picture. Uh, And the purpose for doing this is told right away in verse 2. So that we might live for the will of God. No longer living for uh, the impulses of our sinful flesh, but now living for the will of God. And be, in other words, if we adopt this attitude, we can face the, and resist the gravitational pull, if you would, of human passions and live, therefore, for the will of God. Well, there's a lot of gravitational pull, so to speak, uh, away from the truth today in our culture. The forces are strong and getting stronger. You know, the struggle for human identity and finding human identity outside of revelation uh, and finding it in, in the self, the autonomous, exalted, sovereign self that has a strong gravitational pull on people and, uh, and even uh, many a Christian. The, there's a strong uh, pull in regards to the sexual revolution, redefining sexuality according to, again, the self and so forth. And how do we resist these, this, this pull, these, these new narratives, uh, which are affecting many people, even uh, especially some of the younger generation who've grown up historically within the context of the Christian faith. Well, that's what Peter's telling us here, what to, how to do it. How to prepare to live for the will of God and not for the will of man, not for the, for the will of your own fleshly lusts. That's what he's teaching us here. How to resist the sinful passions and pursue holiness despite the fact that it may result in suffering because that's the context in which Peter is speaking here. How to choose to suffer, if that's what it may mean, rather than sinning or rather than being silent, for example. And many of us have faced that sort of question already. Uh, This is not a new question. This is not a new matter. Peter's saying some of the same things. He comes at it from different angles. In chapter 1, verse 14, listen what he said there. Remember, he said, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. That's behind you. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And he he repeats himself again in chapter 2 and verse, verse 11. And there Peter says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh. He mentions it again, the passions. Remember, those are desires that don't have to be sinful, but when they control us, then they are sinful. They become idolatries. I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, listen to this, which wage war against your soul. And that's what's happening. We're in a war, beloved. Remember that. 
a war for uh, your affections, for what you prize the most, for what you love the most, and therefore for what you live for the most. Yes, make no, no, no error. Don't, don't think otherwise that, that there is no war. There is a war going on in your heart and in your mind. So preparing to live for the will of God is what Peter's telling us, and, and he's talked about it before and will again, but here he introduces, I think, two primary components uh, to how to prepare to live for the will of God, and the first one is by adopting the same attitude that guided Christ, by adopting the same attitude towards suffering that guided the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at verse 1. He says, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh. And when he says that, again, he just means in his human body. Arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. Put on the same way of thinking. The same attitude that Christ had towards suffering. And, and what was that? Well, let's give, notice he begins, Since therefore. So we haven't been in this for five weeks. So let's go backwards. You know that by now, when you see therefore, ask yourself, what is it therefore? So you go backwards, and we look at chapter 3, verse 17. Peter says, it is better to suffer for doing good, for living righteously, for the will of God, right? It's better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will. It may not. You may not have to, but you may have to suffer for doing good, rather than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Flesh, spirit. It's the same thing he says in chapter 4, verse 22. And he is the one who has gone into heaven now and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Since therefore... Christ suffered in the flesh, in his body, you. Arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. And so that's, that's the connection here that Peter's building upon. But this question still stands. What was his way of thinking? <laughs> uh, we know he suffered. We know he suffered for us. We know his sufferings bring us to God. We know his sufferings are the basis of our justification and sanctification. And one day we'll issue into resurrection. But what was his way of thinking in regarding these things? Well, it was simply this. that Suffering for doing good, as he says here. Suffering for righteousness is an inevitable experience on the pathway to glory. Suffering for doing good is an inevitable experience on this journey, on this pathway to glory. That certainly was his own attitude towards his own role as our Savior, as our Messiah, as the, as the righteous sufferer. He understood that that's why he came as the Son of God into this world. In Luke chapter 9, verse 22, it's recorded that he said, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised, you see. So he, know, he knew that suffering was his pathway to glory as the Messiah. And in Luke 24, he said to the disciples after the resurrection, he said, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and then enter his glory, you see. And so he understood that suffering was the pathway to glory 
for himself. And we say, well, is it for us? Absolutely. In Luke chapter 9, he went on to say, and he went on to say, if anyone would come after me, let him, let her, right, deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. In other words, suffering is an inevitable part of following Christ into glory. We've said it before that if we share in the glory of Christ, we must share in the sufferings of Christ. And that's what Paul writes of, about as well in Romans chapter 8. Right? His sufferings is both an example in how he suffered, but it's also an example in his attitude towards suffering. We've seen, we've seen it as an example earlier in chapter 2. Remember these words? In, in, in 1 Peter chapter 2, he says in verse 20, What credit is it if when you sin and you're beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Verse 21, For to this you have been called. Remember that? For to this you've been called. Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. And what was his example? He committed no sin, and there was no deceit in his mouth, but when he was suffering, he did not revile. He did not return evil for evil. Right? Remember that? Remember what those words mean? It means to trace his footsteps, right? Like tracing his writing. And so he's told us that Christ's suffering uh, and the manner in which he suffered is a paradigm for Christian suffering. But what he's telling us in chapter 4 is slightly different, and that is that Christ's attitude, Christ's way of thinking about suffering is also a paradigm for you and me. And that's how we arm ourselves ahead of time, by adopting and embracing his way of viewing suffering. And what is that again? Is that suffering for doing good? It's part of our calling. It's an inevitable experience on our way to glory, you see. And so we are to adopt this attitude. Uh, we may not have to suffer at times. If it be God's will, he said in chapter 3. But there will be times when we will have to make a decision to choose to follow Christ, knowing it brings about Suffering. Paul referred to this in Philippians chapter 3.10 as the fellowship of his sufferings. He said he longed to be a part of that. And he wasn't ashamed of that. Now the main idea here really is the verb arm yourselves. I mean the goal is what? To, to live according to the will of God, right? To live the Christian life. But the, the main verb here is the imperative, the command, arm yourselves. It's a very strong word. It's the only time it's used in the New Testament uh, it means to equip or to arm yourself with an appropriate weapon or an appropriate tool for some task. And it was uh, often used in a military context of a soldier in those days of putting on armor in preparation for battle. And, but the point being that it's done ahead of time. Ahead of time. Because when the, when the arrows start flying and people come at you with swords, it's a little bit late to go looking for your armor, you see. And that's what Paul is getting at. He's saying, arm yourselves for what is coming so that you may live no longer for the flesh, but live for the will of God because the forces, the gravitational forces 
of temptation and sin and the fear of man, the fear of suffering, those forces are strong. And so put on this armor. It's a similar sort of imagery that Paul uses in Ephesians chapter 6. So yes, it'll be too late to put it on there. It's important, I think, to grasp the relationship here between truth and everyday life. This is a little broader principle. Uh, Truth as it relates to everyday life. You see, this is more than know, know the truth, or this is more than knowing doctrine. It is arming yourself with truth. That's another step, beloved. That's more than knowing about what the Bible says. It's arming yourself, equipping yourself with what the Bible says and seeing how it relates to life and especially ahead of time before you face those gravitational forces. It's it's akin to what he said in chapter 315. Remember he said, there may come a day when someone asks you to give an explanation for the hope that is in you. He says, always be ready. That meant, again, think ahead. And here Peter's uh, thinking, I think, along the same uh, lines, you see. How you and I respond, beloved. How you and I respond to sudden events or sudden temptations or a crisis in our life. All right, that th- These things that confront us, the gravitational pull of a crisis or a lack of hope, fear of man or temptation is not only based on what we know, but what we have embraced what we have armed ourselves with, what we have deeply, deeply embedded into our hearts, you see. To say you have a shotgun in your closet is a good thing, but to say it's sitting in the closet and not arm yourself when you heard somebody breaking down the front door, well, it's too late, you see. And this is what's happened to many who've grown up in the context of church and ourselves as a church and as a community, a a church and as families, in some cases we've not helped them to arm themselves with truth. Not simply hear it, but to absorb it, embed it in their hearts, prepare themselves. And so our reaction to a situation like this, again, a crisis or a temptation, something that might lead to a temptation, is the result not only of what we've read at some point, but as as a result of what we are able to tell ourselves because we've been telling ourselves these things about this kind of situation ahead of time. We've armed ourselves. We've visualized that. We've had that mental map, you see, and that internal dialogue. You see, two Christians may face the same kind of situation. Both of them grew up here. Both of them heard that God is sovereign. God is good. God is in control. He's the king of the kings. But something happens to threaten their life, maybe their livelihood. And you know, they know, they're told God is powerful, sovereign, in control, wise, and loving. And yet one of them is crushed. One of them is ruined. One of them is consumed with anxiety. Why? Because they've only heard about this. They've never armed themselves with it. They don't even know how to talk to themselves about the truth. It was always something outside things that people were saying out here. And once in a while they'd say amen to that. But they've yet to embed that in their soul. 
And this is a, a practice that each of us needs to learn uh, to, to, to take in the word deeper than in our ears and to learn how it relates to life and to imagine it, especially situations you know are common to you. In other words, you know you're going to go back to work and hear that same guy say that thing again. You know you're going to go over here. You know that woman's going to dress in the way she did. You know you're going to go to campus and they're going to mock you the way they've been mocking you. You know you're going to get into this conversation at Thanksgiving with Uncle So-and-so. And so you know these things are coming. What do you do? You arm yourself so that you might say yes to Christ, which may mean yes to suffering. And no to silence or no to sinning because you have been embedding these truths into your heart. So I encourage you that we do this as a community. We, as when, you, when we meet in community groups, that's part of it. It's not, it's not just rehashing things. It's, it's reflecting on how these things affect our lives. Your life at work, your life at school, your life in the neighborhood, and, and, and seeing how truth should sustain us and, or help us and so forth. And you do it yourself. When you read the scriptures, ask yourself, not, not skipping what does it mean properly, I understand, but get to the point where you say, why am I reading this today? How does this apply? How is this going to connect with life? And reflect on it. Arm yourselves ahead of time. Um, an example of this would be uh, the experience of Moses. We've We've reflected on this before from Hebrews chapter 11. What did it say about Moses? That he went through this kind of experience using different language. The author of the Hebrews says in, in Hebrews eleven twenty four, By faith Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Think for a moment what that means, what that implies. He said no to being a prince in Egypt. No to all the wealth, no to all the power, no to all the influence and privileges that would have come to him by saying yes to being a prince of Egypt, to being the daughter, a son of Pharaoh. But he said no to that. How? Verse 25, choosing, there's the choice, just as Christ chose to suffer when he was in the garden of Gethsemane and said, not my will be done, but let your will be done. Just as Christ chose to suffer, Moses chose to suffer. He said, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. And the Bible's honest. Sin can be pleasurable. There's things about sin that can bring you pleasure, but it's fleeting. It's fleeting, not only in this life, but if that's what you live for, it'll be gone forever in the next. And there'll be no pleasure when you experience the condemnation of God. And so but Moses had seen this, and how did he do it? He considered, that's important right there, that verb, he reckoned. He came to a solid conclusion about something. In other words, he armed himself with truth. Here's the truth he armed himself with. He considered the reproach of Christ's greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. Hmm. I like to picture Moses pacing in one of those halls and in, uh, in Egypt, saying over and over to himself, the reproach of Christ is greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. The reproach of Christ is greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. Um, some battles are that strong that you need to go that far, huh? And, and tell yourself the gospel over and over. 
that God may give you the strength and grace to trust what he's already said. He told himself over and over, the reproach of Christ is greater wealth than treasures of Egypt, for, this is what else he did, he was looking to the reward. And how? By faith, you know, by faith. And this echoes what Peter tells us in 1 Peter in chapter 1. He says, look forward to the reward. Tell yourself, chapter 1, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Christ, Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. You see, the reproach of Christ is greater wealth than the riches of Egypt. The reproach of Christ is greater wealth than the riches of Egypt. Because the reproach of Christ leads to what? An incomparable, undefiled inheritance and glory. And so he armed himself. He armed himself with that truth. And we need to do that with all scripture. But here the point is what? Arm yourself with what? the same attitude towards suffering in this body, in this life that guided Christ Jesus through his life. Arm yourself with that same attitude. And then briefly at the end of verse 1 he immediately gives it a support for, with a reason. He says for why should we do this? For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. That's a, a difficult statement. It can be confusing. The, the for there is because and that's the first decision we have to make, and I think it's the right decision. The four there is because of be giving a basis, a reason to arm yourself, because whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Now, who is the whoever has suffered in the flesh? Some think that's a reference to Christ, because earlier it said he suffered in the flesh. And they, some think that's the whoever, but it's hard to take that view, because this whoever had to cease from sin. <laughs> and Jesus never had to cease from sin. So this is a generic statement. In other words, it's saying whoever, a representative of believers, whoever has had to suffer in their body, just like Christ suffered in his body, because they chose what? They chose to keep the same outlook, the same mental attitude that Christ had. This person has ceased from sin. So now we're asking ourselves, what's it mean that he ceased from sin? <laughs> as we make our way through each one of the questions. Well, it doesn't mean that this person is now sinlessly perfect. That's impossible because of what scriptures teaches everywhere. Well, some think that what it means is that suffering purges sin. That if you suffer, you will sin less. There's some truth in that, right? We've all gone through something uh, and we've said, well, I don't want to do that again. Well, yeah, but I don't think that's what he's getting at. And the reason is this. This is not a causal statement. Why do I say that? Because the verb ceased from sin is in the Greek perfect, meaning it's in the past, a completed event in your past that continues into the present. So the person who says no to sin, the person who therefore suffers in the body because of Christ and their devotion to him, this person can know that they have what? Had a break with sin in the past. What, what, what is this saying? It's not talking about sinless perfection. This is a statement of affirmation 
somewhat akin to what Paul says in Romans 6, that if that we have died to sin, sin is no longer our master, and we are now alive to God. And when a person suffers for Christ because he or she chose to do so, they experience that affirmation that there has indeed been a break with sin. I'm no longer under the domination of my previous sinful inclinations. I would have said, I would have said no and not suffered. I think that's what he's getting at. And so the main point here is what, beloved? The main point is this. If you want to live for the will of God in a world that is strongly pulling you in different directions, arm yourselves ahead of time. Arm yourselves by adopting the same attitude towards suffering that the Lord Jesus had, which was what? That suffering is inevitable uh, in this path to glory. And then the second thing, the second component to living for the will of God, it's a secondary thing because the primary thing is that main verb there, arm yourself, but this is all supportive here. The second is grasping the motivational truths that are given to us so that we might endure. And so Peter now immediately provides several motivations for doing this. And uh, there are other motivations in the Bible, to be sure. But there's three primary motivations here. And as uh, many commentators point out, uh, there are three tenses. There's motivation from the past, motivation from the present, motivation from the future. So let's look at the motivation from the past. Why would you be motivated to do what? To, to arm yourself with the understanding that I may have to suffer and I should be ready to choose suffering. Why should you do it? Here's a motivation from the past. Verse 3, for the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. What is it they want to do? These pagans living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. He says that's in the past. It appears that, as we've noted before, that this supports the idea that most of these readers came from a pagan background. Because he's saying, you, that's where you were before. <laughs> And enough time for all that. And remember when you read lists like this in the New Testament, we've said before, they're not meant to be exhaustive. <laughs> they did all sorts of other things <laughs> as pagans that don't belong uh, in the text because he just doesn't list them this way. And this is how they were living in the first century. And hey, we're not far from that here in the 21st century. In major cities in this country and in Europe, we're not too far from the public orgies of ancient Rome, and so forth. And so he says, that, that, that's all behind you. In other words, he's building on the fact of what? That you are suffering because you're devoted to Christ, and this, this shows you that there's been a break with sin, right, from the past, so let's leave it there. <laughs> Don't go back to it. It's behind you at this point. However long or short the time was that you spent in unbelief, that's it. It was enough, you know. I think, he, again, he's talking to people who came to faith probably mostly as adults. I understand some, uh, some of you, uh, especially those of you who are younger, may say I was raised here in the church and I came to faith when, when I was only 10. I, I never did any of these things on this list. 
Well, I'll tell you what, what, what he would say to you is, well, your, your, your first 10 years was enough. <laughs> and if you came to Christ at 16, your first 16 years without him was enough, you see. It's enough. It was behind you. And now it's time to do what? To live for the will of God. It's time to live for the will of God. Why? Because you have been purchased by God. You belong to Him. That's what Paul teaches us. He says to you, you're not your own. You've been bought out of the market of slavery to sin. Your life's not your own. You belong to Him. And so the will of God is what should concern you now. Leave that all behind you. Proverbs says that when we start going back to what was behind us, he says that's like a dog returning to its vomit. Why would you go back? So sometimes maybe we need to think about the past a little bit to, to not go to the past. You ever thought it before about, especially those of you that came to faith maybe a bit later in life, you think about the, think about the, the years you spent wasting it? You think back at how you used the most precious thing given to you, which is what? Time? You'll never get it back. And you spent all that time in things that, that uh, had nothing to do with righteousness and the gospel. And he says, well, live behind you. And be concerned now with living for God, you know. I remember the conversion of my dad. That he, my dad came to faith in his 50s. And so when he came to faith in his 50s, he looked back. And that's some of, those were some of the things he told me. He said, I can't believe it. I can't believe it. I lived all those years. To, and he was talking about for his business, for success. And so he auctioned off all his tractors and he bought himself that big truck. Uh, it was an eight-wheeler and he took food and cloth, clothing to orphans in Mexico. He did that for several years. Why? Because he was, he was animated by the fact that he wasted all that time. So why arm yourself so you don't go backwards because uh, that was enough and it's behind you now don't waste your time anymore it's time to live for the fruit of the spirit now not the flesh and secondly there's a uh, motivation from the present in verse 4 uh, the, the reaction of people should motivate you to prepare to meet them <laughs> He says, two things are going to happen when you stop joining them in all their wacko parties that you used to be a part of. Two things are going to happen. They're going to be surprised, and then they're going to malign you. They're going to malign you. Verse 4, with respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery. And they malign you. What's that mean? They mock you. They make fun of your faith. Fun of the fact that you think you're better than them. Fun of the, of the Bible. They mock the fact that you think there's a God. They, they, mock, they make a mockery of your, your desire for purity. All of these things that know that that's coming. So arm yourselves with the same attitude that Christ had. Because it's going to happen, you see. And some of you can readily picture this at your job or in some other relationship. I told you before, I was converted when I was a, a you know, up-and-coming rock star in the Bay Area. <laughs> Not really, what was I doing? I was playing, playing uh, late into night at clubs all over the Bay Area. When I came to faith, it was, it was something. 
It was something to stop doing what we used to do on Friday nights and say, I can't do that anymore. What mockery. What mockery. What, uh, what maligning. Yeah, that's the present. That could be one of the hardest things that a, a new Christian faces, maybe especially if they've, they've been living in the world for a long time and they come to faith later in life, is, is facing the harassment and the mockery and the jokes. and They'll make fun of you. They'll make you look like a fool at work and all of that, you see. So arm yourselves. Right? And it's hard because on, on one level you don't want to you don't want to break off relationships with these people because such were some of you and God came to you and you hope that you can share the gospel with them. So I don't encourage every Christian to break off all relationships with unbelievers, but Peter says, arm yourselves because no, they're going to try and pull you right back in. Right? So be prepared. And so you want to, you want to be around for the sake of the gospel, but you better be prepared to take some blows. I remember when I came to faith and I t- shared with you a few times that I wrote that letter to all our band members and that one of, one of our band members, Nelson, looked at me. He stayed, all the rest left, and he said, I'm going to stick around to see if this is real. And what was he saying? He was saying, I think it's just a phase in your life, so I'll stick around. Praise God he came to faith. But the mockery endured by all the others, from all the others, and, and, the, and the things we went through from that on, that was pretty rough. So he says, let that be a motivation, the second motivation. And then the third motivation is the future. Verse 5, but they, who's they? They who are surprised, they who malign you, they will give an account to him, I think this is Christ, who is ready to judge the living and the dead. And I think what Peter's doing here in this first statement is he's trying to motivate them and encourage them uh, both in a, a sort of positive and a negative way, meaning on, in two different ways. He's saying, uh, on one hand, he's saying, don't let it get you down that they abuse you because however it lasts, it may last the rest of your career. It may last all the rest of your of, of, of your. Of your, of your life on this earth, wherever you are, whatever you do, but it won't be forever. And it will come to an end. There is a reckoning coming, a judgment coming, you see. And so you don't have to return evil for evil because God's the one who will deal with that. Remember that? You return good for evil because there is a reckoning that is coming and these people have to give an account for the things they've said and the things they've, they've done to you. So that's one way he's encouraging them, but and the, another way he's encouraging them is that because this is true, arm yourselves so you can stick around because this poor soul needs to hear the gospel from you. This poor soul needs to know that Jesus Christ is real and there is a judgment coming. And right now you are the salt and light that God's left in front of this person, so... Keep these things in mind. There's a reckoning coming. I think he's, he, wants, uh, he wants our life, our work, and our witness to, all, to live according to the will of God, to all be done with what? A conscious anticipation of the second coming of Jesus Christ and the amazing power that will bring with it and the condemnation that it will mean for so many 
and the glory that it will mean for you and me. And he wants you to live in light of that. Arm yourselves so you can endure abuse from people who, as of right now, it looks like they will face condemnation. So you can be that light to them. Instead of joining them in their dissipation, you stay as that steady light of a better life, the life that is true, the life God wants people to live. Because when that judgment comes, it will be profound. And I, I believe it is the Son. I think he's talking here about, about the Lord Christ. In the book of John, the Gospel of John says, the Father has given the judgment over to the Son. And, and uh, in the book of Acts, uh, Paul preaching says in Acts 17, 31, that God the Father has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness, note this, by a man. Because Jesus is still a man. By a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance. In other words, how can we know this is going to happen? By raising that man from the dead. And then Paul would write later to the church of Thessalonica about that, about that coming judgment that comes with the return of the Lord Jesus Christ in the second letter to the Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. Paul writes the following. He says, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God, why do you boast, Paul? For your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. In other words, we tell other people about how you are staying true and how you are armed with the, the same attitude as Christ and how you are suffering for your faith. And then he says, this is evidence. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. Through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. And so this is a demonstration, it's an affirmation that you are, you're on the right road. There's supposed to be pain on this road. And then he said, since indeed God considers it just, and here it is, listen, God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you. Wow. I would venture to say any affliction that you would want to give back to somebody who afflicts you is not going to compare to what God's going to do. There is no comparison to an eternal condemnation. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief Relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us. When will this take place, Paul? When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction, an unending condemnation, away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might, when He comes on the, that day to be glorified in His saints and to be marveled at among all who believed. What an amazing thing, huh? It's hard to picture it. But we have to somehow embed this in our hearts as well. Otherwise, we won't tend to have pity on these people and we'll seek to get our own revenge. What's lying ahead for them as of right now is unimaginable. And so arm yourself that you might remain true and be a light and give hope 
And there's more as well in the future. And that is what he says in verse 6, still future. For this is why the gospel was preached, even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh, the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. Do you remember earlier, we read from the earlier chapters that Christ suffered in the flesh, meaning in his body, but was made alive in spirit. And so here he's getting us something here at the end. And this is why the gospel was preached in the past even to those who are dead. I know that sounds perplexing, but remember, it's designed to encourage them. So this has to be a statement that, that, that lifts them up as they think about it. And Peter, I think, it concludes by emphasizing that the gospel was preached uh, to believers in the past who are now dead. In fact, the NIV adds the word now to, to, to make that interpretation clear. He's saying there's coming a day when the Lord Jesus Christ is, is going to judge the living and the dead. And he imagines, I think, and I imagine that, that, that the Christians suffered a lot of mockery because they, they were cut out of all the fun, all the good stuff, all the stuff that people were doing. And then you know what happened to them? They died just like everyone else died. In fact, they may even have killed some of them. You can imagine that some of them were wondering, just like Paul when he wrote Romans, people wondering, what happened to eternal life? What happened to be made alive with him? And what he says, listen, there's a judgment coming, but that's why the gospel was preached to some among you who were among you who are now dead. So that what? So that though they are judged in their body, meaning what? They die like everyone else. Though they are judged in the body, uh, he says, in the way people are, all people are. Nevertheless, like Christ, they might live in spirit the way God does. Because he is spirit. And so Peter animates them. This is an incentive to remember the judgment that is coming. Let's have pity on people. Let's endure. Let's know that our suffering won't be permanent. And let's also know that though we may suffer bodily, we will be alive in the Spirit when this life is done. In other words, what Peter's told us before, suffering isn't the last word, and neither is death for you and me if you're a Christian. From this life, we'll enter into a life of being alive in the Spirit. As Paul says, to be absent from the body is what? to be present with the Lord. And yet there's more. We'll be alive in spirit, in a spiritual body, and then comes the end when we experience the resurrection of the body. And so that's what he says to them, emphasizing that this ought to be a final motivation for you and me to do what? To adopt, embrace the same attitude that Jesus had towards suffering, recognizing, look, it's inevitable. It's part of what it means to be a Christian on the way to glory, right? If we share in the crown, we must share in the cross. Like Jesus said, pick up your cross daily and follow me. If God wills it. If God wills it. And I know he has willed it for many of you, and he will will it yet again. I'm telling you, the forces in this culture right now, they're at work the false narratives, the redefining of humanity and gender and all these things, 
is making it more and more difficult for people to have a biblical worldview without being persecuted. And the gravitational pull of these things must be faced by being prepared ahead of time, arming ourselves with, with the truth, the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, like Moses did. Let me ask you, does your life give evidence in any way of the fact that you have indeed made a break with sin by the grace of God? Does your life give evidence that by virtue of choosing, choosing to face suffering, potentially if it comes, because of your devotion to Christ. That should be an affirmation. Every one of us should experience to some degree the surprise of other people that you don't live like everyone else. And so forth. The model for this kind of life, beloved, is our Lord Jesus Christ. But the good news is that the power for this kind of life also comes from the Lord Jesus Christ. We do not do these things in the strength of our own flesh. God forbid. He is faithful. He is faithful. And so you arm yourselves right now, arm yourselves with this truth, that in Christ you're a new creation, that in Christ you have the Holy Spirit, that in Christ he is the shepherd of your soul, that in Christ he will stand with you, that in Christ you have the capacity to say no to sin, and yes to righteousness. Arm yourself with that truth. And the Lord gives us that truth both in the gospel and in the visual gospel, the Lord's Supper. And so we go to that now. We may come to this table feeling beat up and stumbling and thinking back at all our failures to say yes to Christ, but listen, he's ready to give you grace today. So let's take a few moments to pray. Lord, meet us in this time as we come to your table. And as we reflect, dear God, on the things we've heard today, we need strength, we need grace. We pray, Lord, you cleanse us, forgive us, Lord, for the times that we have, like Peter, perhaps, Lord, denied you. And seek, Lord, the strength to say yes, the strength to choose, Lord, that which may lead to hardship, knowing that you stand with us, knowing that you are faithful, knowing that you will empower. So, Lord, give us that grace, we pray, through your Holy Spirit, and meet us, Lord, in this supper, ministering to us, even in this way, Lord, your sustaining grace, for Christ's sake. Amen.